But today I'm going to talk to you about something that has been on my heart for years, literally years. I've been studying it for over 10 years, and the reason for that is because of the fact that I picked up a book 10 years ago, and I read a book by Macintosh is the gentleman's name. Matter of fact, many of my mentors are not real life, or I'd say I have never met them. I meet them through books. And so they have mentored me, and I have a full library of men and women that have mentored me through the readings, and I've never met this man. But he wrote a book entitled, One Church, Four Generations. Ten years ago, I read this book, and it was at that point that I was made fully aware that for the very first time in the history of mankind, four to five generations will occupy the same time space before the next generation moves on. And so therefore, that caught my attention. And in my studies for corporate America, I also studied how intergenerational will also affect the corporation, the economy, and every aspect. And one of them, well, also one of the organizations that will impact is two of them. One of them, additionally to those, one of them is the church. It will impact the church. The second one is what we're going to be talking about today, the family. Whether you realize it or not, the intergenerational movement or the intergenerational changes that are taking place is also impacting the family as well. So today I want to take a few moments and talk to you about intergenerational family conflict. And the reason I want to talk to you about that is because I don't know if you realize this or not. We're living in a time, or should I say, there is a phenomenon taking place in our culture. As a matter of fact, around the world. And that is that there is an aging population that is greatly growing. I know it's hard to believe. I still look young. Y'all look old, but that's, that's between you and Jesus. Amen. But whether you realize it or not, you're, you don't have that hop that you had 15, 20 years ago. Now we just kind of get up a little slow. As a matter of fact, when I get up, I used to get up and just jump right out of bed. Now I jump out of bed. One time I jumped out of bed and the legs went like this and I went back down again. I realize now that I have to let it linger over the bed there for a while so the blood can get back down in there. We are living in an age-populated society that will bring a tremendous change in all social and all social institutions. And therefore, that's why I want to talk to you about it. And the reason is, is because one of the things that is socially changing is the family. Matter of fact, there's an increase of of conflict within the family as a result of these changes that are taking place. Matter of fact, I just want to talk to you or share with you facts that are already present. And that is that we are living in an aging aging population that has a rapid moving force. And it's, it's, it's changing things so fast. If y'all put that slide, and I thank Robert for doing this. Matter of fact, Robert has to wait for me because I'm not as quick as some of these other preachers. It takes me a month to just get one message together. And so, therefore, yesterday I put it together, and I want to tell you, I think we need to give a clap to that media because they do a lot of work. Some of you don't realize how much work they do. They do a lot of work, just like many volunteers that are here. That's what Pastor, Don, Pastor Anthony is trying to say. We need more volunteers because right now we have some. We are very appreciative. But when we get to that other building, we're going to have to triple, or possibly quadruple. So you might as well get uncomfortable. Amen. Uncomfortable because you're not going to have a special seat up there. You're going to be on your feet. Serving the Lord. You've done sat down for a long time. You better come to those meetings so that you can find out where 
God wants to plug you. Not Anthony, not Pastor Anthony, not Pastor Hurd, but where the Lord wants to plug you. And it's about time we begin to serve the Lord with everything that he has gifted it. Don't you bury that, tr- that gift. You better dig it up and use it for the honor and glory of God. And so, therefore, as we get ready to look at this real quick, the aging population, it's changing everything. Matter of fact, the aging population is, is, is going to bring a cultural shift. And I came across a website that right now we have 52 million strong. Can we say amen, everyone over 55 and older? Amen. 52 million and strong, and we're growing. Every day, new people are coming in. They're turning 55. <laughs> This tread will continue until 2050 when the last one, and that's probably going to be me, I'll die. So I want to tell the rest of the generation, you got me for a long time, baby. And so therefore, the interesting thing about it is that if you would take that population and the increase that it's going, it can occupy 25 states in the United States. I told them this morning, we're going to take Texas. We're going to take Washington, D.C., they can keep California because it's a matter of, it's a matter of time before they swim, they go into the Pacific. They can keep them. They can keep New York, all that stuff. They can keep it up there. We just want that beautiful country. Therefore, 25 states will occupy the boomers. 55, and it won't stop until 2050. Notice what it's going to take. Medicare will, spending will increase. It will increase by 2020. We're only two years away. It will increase 19%. I don't know about you, but I got mine already. I'm in, buddy. I'm in, baby. They can't throw me out and out of the hospital. Once I go in there, they better hold on to me. So, therefore, it will continue to increase. And increase and increase. One other thing boomers will do, 55 and older, guess what they're going to start doing? One of them, they will reduce their spending. They won't be buying all that fun toys. They're going to start selling them toys and putting it back in the bank. And so, therefore, financially, it's going to begin to impact. Some people believe, some people don't. But I want to believe that I think it will impact the economy. As soon as the boomers begin to stop spending or reduce their spending, they will downsize. They will sell their big three- or four-bedroom homes, and they'll downsize because they won't be able to hold on to them, not necessarily because they don't have the money. It's because it's just too much work. And so, therefore, they will begin downsizing. Besides that, they will begin to hold on to that money. And they'll begin to stretch it as much as possible. And I tell you what, that is a, there is a wider social change taking place right now amongst the population of aging. And that is one, the one we're going to talk about, the challenges it poses for the family. It poses a tremendous challenge for the family. Because this social change of intergenerational family, blending families of generation, is creating family conflicts. Matter of fact, this culture continues to undermine parental authority in rearing our children. They continue to take more rights away from the parents to try to tell their kids. We can't even spank them anymore. I've done spank mine. I don't know about y'all's. I ain't gonna, but I'm telling you, it's undermining the parental authority. So therefore, they begin to have more rights than the parents have. Besides that, parents begin to feel humiliated, depressed, and guilty for the behavior of their children. I know some of you, like myself, have been embarrassed by the behavior of our children. Amen. I've been depressed. I've seen my children. I have four of them. Sometimes I wish I'd killed them all, but I, I still have them around. 
Sometimes I try to kick them and they hold on to my foot. I say, we will love them. We will love them until they kill us or we kill them, one or the other. We're going to love them. So therefore, parents feel humiliated, depressed, and guilty because parents get, they get blamed for all the wrong our children are doing. When all the time they're undermining us and not letting us rear our children the way we want, we need to, the way the, way, the, way the, the Lord wants us to raise them. And I think one of the other things is that it, can, it begins to ultimately what happens in the family, Christian families even. We're not excluded. There is not a Christian family that is excluded from this. Eventually, there will be some aspects of this tension conflict that will not change. It will not change. And we have to face that reality. But nonetheless, parents are always seeking some relief for their emotional pain. The reason is we don't reach out to others is because we're ashamed. We don't want to let anyone know that our children raised in a Christian home are no longer walking the faith. Listen, I know what I'm talking about because that's what's happened to me. I've been a pastor all my life. I've been raised in the church. I've got four kids. They're prodigals. I, I, I pray for them every day. They've made some serious mistakes and I've stood by them. Some of them have walked out of my, one of them has walked out of our lives. And so therefore, I know what I'm talking about. I know that what it is to ask the question, what is a hurting parent to do? What do we do in times like this? Where intergenerational, there intergeneration conflict in the families occurring. How do we handle this? So therefore, for me, it started one morning when my wife woke up and made some tortillas for me. Some huevos rancheros. And as I said in the morning, I exaggerate. That wasn't happening. She told me, go to McDonald's and pick up that dollar biscuit and that oatmeal, bring it back and sit down. I said, okay. When I got, <laughs> when I got back, back in 2007, I used to watch Good, watch Good Morning America. They still were making sense. Now they don't make no sense. They used to, used to talk about some good stuff. Now they don't know what they're talking about. So now I don't watch them anymore. But back then, I used to just sit there and find out what was the latest thing going on. And at that time, they were interviewing a psychologist by the name of Joshua Coleman. He was just letting everyone know about his new book, about parenting and family and relationships. My major was in psychology. And at that time, my son, my oldest son, walked out of our lives. It had been three years since I had heard from him. Not even one text, not one call, nothing. Three years. The burden for my wife and myself at that time was so heavy. We were at a point to lose our mind. Once in a while, by God's grace, someone would show up and tell me, I saw your son. My only question was, is he doing well? Said, yeah, he's doing well. It was at that time in my life, at 2007, three years of not seeing my son, I asked the question, what is a hurting parent to do? So I was, I was looking for answers. I was trying to find some information. Don't get me wrong. I believe in God's word. 
I've been studying God's word all my life. I consider myself a student of the word from the day that God gifted me with the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have searched the scriptures, every one. I believe it. It has impacted my life in a way that probably I'm even surprised sometimes. But I also understand that we can extend and broaden our knowledge. And so therefore, my, my, my bachelor's was in psychology, and I began to understand a little psychology. A lot of people get scared when I tell them I know psychology. They think I'm checking them out. Little do they know, I'm trying to figure myself out. I ain't worried about you. I'm worried about myself. And so therefore, I broadened my, at that period of my life, I was broadening my understanding and so therefore, when he introduced his book, When Parents Hurt, it meant it was logical for me to buy it. I was desperate. I just wanted to learn. I, had, I was trusting God, but a little help, I mean, of understanding the psychology of the conflict in the family structure would help me. And I'll take anything right now. Now I want you to know there's some things that I learned that I want to share with you. One of them I wrote in here, and it's in yellow. And it is, aging is not, a, is not only a life stage, and I put the word only, it is not on your slide, but it's not only a life stage, but a process of life experiences you modify while influencing others in your family. As you grow, you have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to be able to understand things change in your life. So therefore, I come to the conclusion that being parents in the 21st century requires transformation, the renewing of my mind. I had to change my way of thinking about being a parent. My kids were no longer children. They were adult children. And I had to begin to understand and make that shift in my mind. I needed to understand that I was living in a time that was totally culturally different. And so therefore, I'm sharing with you these things. Because of the fact that I want you that are young at this point in your life, understand that this is coming. This is part of the generations, things that generations go through. I mentioned to to you that at the beginning of the message, I mentioned to you, there is an aging population movement that is forcing social change. At the same time, there's another generation that's countering it. Or not countered in a bad way, but it's coming, not against it, but it is also blended in in the same time frame. The well-known millennials, the saviors of the world. I don't know about that. The millennials are present. They are a force to be contented with. Matter of fact, when I was picking up breakfast for me and my wife because she didn't want to make tortillas and and eggs... At McDonald's, I took this paper back in in September 17, and it was about the millennials. It was written by a lady by name by Margie Gordon. It's the Chronicle. She entitles her article, An Entire Generation of Cultural Assassins. I knew there was something wrong with you guys. You bunch of assassins. Matter of fact... They are described, or she describes them as a generation that is big. It's a big generation and the most diverse generation. They're diverse. Besides that, 
They are idealist. They are self-expressive. They change how we dress to go to work. <laughs> the other day I went to go pick up my, with my daughter the car that had been repaired at the body shop. Walking around with shorts and, and just tennis shoes. And I said, my Lord, where is the professionalism around here? When I used to go. They showed up with a tie and they said, mister, now, hey, what can I do for you? What do you mean, hey, with me? <laughs> hey, is for horses. <laughs> and sandwiched between the millennials and the boomers. We're at it right now, millennials. We're rolling up our sleeves. Make my day. <laughs> you know, I'm kidding with you. I am kidding with you. I want you to understand what's taking place. Because this has a lot to do with family. And I won't want you to be participant of something that you'll regret in life. Sandwiched between the millennials and the boomers, you have the buster generation, the X generation. They're the ones that caught in the middle. They're the ones that are 40, 45, 50. They haven't reached the bronze age of 55. <laughs> I'm at the silver age, 65. And when I get to 85, I'm in the gold age. And if I get past 90, I'm platinum. So therefore, I want you to understand all this is converging and bringing change into the home. I reached out for that book and I read it. I reached out for the scriptures and I read it. And I came to the conclusion, prodigals have been around for thousands of years. Parents, prodigals have been around for thousands of years. And when I talk about a prodigal, I'm not talking about just that person that's a drug that, that's gone on and messed their life. I'm talking about those children that have left the faith. They have left the message of salvation. They've walked out from those things. I'm talking about that generation that we did everything possible to try to teach them. We tried. We prayed. We tried to teach them. But they just chose to reject it. And so therefore, I want to tell you, prodigals have been around for thousands of years. It is a disheartened reality that we need to embrace as parents. They've been around. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 5 and 7, it says that King Hezekiah, his character is described as trusting the Lord more than any other king. That included David. But he had a son that logically he should have embraced that same level of relationship with God. But to the contrary, his son Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord. You figure. You and I figure. 
How is that possible? Now, some of you are sitting there and saying, ain't going to happen to me. Little Johnny, little Johnny and little Jane, little Juanita and little Juan. Ustedes creen que no hablaba español, eh? Me veo blanco, pero hablo español. I might look a little, you know, I got some blue eyes, you know, eh? I speak their Spanish. But you know little Juanita and little Juan and little Jane and little John? They grow. And then they start having a little attitude. <laughs> and like Major Payne says, they need an attitude adjustment. They start growing. You may trust the Lord. Ain't no, there's no guarantee. It'll transfer. You might be doing okay with your children. Be thankful. Because I guarantee you, the percentage of intergenerational family conflict amongst the aging is more than what we speak about. The reason we don't speak about it in church is because we are ashamed. And we don't know who to talk to them about that might help us walk through the guilt and the shame that our children are putting us in through. So therefore, we have to wrestle with all that. Manasseh did evil. He committed idolatry. He committed moral immorality. Matter of fact, that wasn't enough for him. He sacrificed his children to pagan gods. Do you know what that word is? Felicity. That means an deliberate attempt or the deliberate murdering of your own child. I couldn't do that. I'd like to do that, but I couldn't do that. <laughs> There's a sister over here. I don't have my glasses. Thank God. Amen. Don't go murder him. Don't, don't do it. In the New Testament, we have the parable of the prodigal son. A very romantic parable of a father, a son and father restoration. And we fully understand that the biblical interpretation of it is also based or speaks about redemption and, and God's mercy and about self-righteousness. But I want to share with you that we put aside the biblical interpretation and do some critical thinking. Critical thinking means look at the scriptures in a way that we've never looked at them before. That's why sometimes it's good to go to a secular college. Because sometimes we're around so much church, we don't think critically sometimes. So therefore, that's why I went amongst the heathens to learn how they learn. And I found out that if I wasn't, if I had not experienced the Holy Spirit, I, had, I would have become a heathen myself. Amen. They are so convincing. So therefore, let us forgo the biblical interpretation. And let's consider the parable as a case study of inner intergenerational family conflict. 
If we approach it that way, put the spiritual aspect aside and look at it with psychology, look at it from a dynamics of a family structure, we can then ask the question, what was going on in the home that caused that child to make an offensive request? Parents, children don't walk out of our lives just because they want to. We may have provoked them. Now, not taking away nothing from this parable, I believe in this parable, this man was a godly man. There's no indications that he was not benevolent. He was a very benevolent father. But you have to remember the intended purpose of that was for us to understand that that son had walked away from that. That that was abnormal. But let us just take the hypothetical evidence of this case study, not as a parable, but as an intergenerational family conflict. And we can then ask, what was going on in the family that we don't know was going on in the family? That's why I propose to you a couple of three hypothetical motives that could have influenced that son to leave. We all know that that culture was very patriotic. In other words, the father was the ultimate rule of that culture. The role of the father sometimes would cross over to an authoritarian parenting. We have to ask ourselves, are we being authoritarian in our home environment or are we being authoritative and trying to instruct our children? Because an authoritarian parenting in the family will force our children to go away. Only one all right and two amens over here. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not speaking on that gauge. Because I'd have to walk off right now. We know that this culture was a perfectionist culture. A culture that was not interested in the inner achievements of the child as much as they were interested in the external achievements of the child. Oftentimes, in the time we're living in, as parents, sometimes we seek external achievements by force and using the, their Bad names are, are labels that are so bad. Why are you so fat? What's wrong with you, boy? What's wrong with you, girl? You dumb? Only one? Come on. <laughs> I have two amens over here. One oh. Now, I'm pretty sure no one's going to be saying nothing. These are hypothetical. They could be present. They may be present. That might be an issue in the home. I'm not there. Case studies is for self-examination. You examine your situation. You examine your circumstances. I'm not here throwing rocks. I'm not here trying to make you feel bad. I'm here to try to encourage you to real, real, realize. That's all. 
But one of the things that I know was prevalent in that household that is beyond being hypothetical is that there were anger issues in that home. You say, now, brother, you're twisting the scriptures. Can't be more than what evangelists do sometimes. (laughs) Or prophets, teachers at least can twist them a little bit. You say, brother, how do you know they had anger issues? Notice, when the son gets back and the elder finds out, is he happy? Is he joyful? He's angry. Here's the key. Anger is a taught behavior. Anger, children learn from those that have a rule over them. If there's anger issues in the home, there's anger issues at the top. Well, the amens are coming out a little bit more now. We're, we're getting there now. I don't know about you balcony up there. You ain't saying nothing up there. <laughs> Anger issues. Matter of fact, the young man was saying this. We done spent half of the inheritance in bailing him out of jail. And getting him out of debt, paying child support. Now he's coming back for the other half. <laughs> Ain't gonna happen. Over my dead body, it's not gonna happen. Because when you die, I want to at least have half of the inheritance. That's why, in my will, my wife and I, we already wrote our will. We ain't got much, but what we do have, we don't want the kids to fight over it. And there's a clause. If any of them contest the will, they're off the will. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 6 talks about anger in the home. One thing about anger, it has no place in the home. It has no place in the home. And the reason it, can, it has no place in the home is because anger doesn't build relationships. It destroys them. Anger doesn't only destroy families, it belittles the children or belittles the child to the point that their, their future is impacted. Anger not only does that, but anger destroys your ability to father and mother children. Now, we all have anger problems. Only one yup over here, no yups over here. I said we all have anger problems. There's been times we come off the cross. That's how come I don't, I, don't, I don't nail this one real good because once in a while I got to get it down. Get the other ones off and get, get back down. You know when I found out I had anger issues? When I came home from Sunday night service back in 1976. 
we had had a hallelujah, holy ghost service. We had sang, I got the Holy Ghost down in my heart. Just like the Bible says. Matter of fact, I was singing it all the way home. My little girl's only about four years old sitting in the back. See, back then, we didn't seat belt them. We just let them roll in the back. They just... If they made it home, they made it home. If not, <laughs> now we got to strap them, trap them, man, that little kid. Ah, ah, what the heck? Is, don't get me wrong. Strap them kids down. I get home at night. I get home at night. Singing, I got the Holy Ghost. Saturday, I had raked up all the leaves in the yard, about five or six bags full of leaves. I had a Doberman Pinscher. It's about this big. They're mean-looking dog. Had them in the yard because I lived in a bad neighborhood. Barbed wire. <laughs> wait, wait. I'm exaggerating. <laughs> Help me, it's right. Help me. Listen, I get up there and that doggone dog tore all them bags and spread there all over the yard. I got off the cross. You know what I'm talking about. You've done it. came for a little praise. You remember that movie that 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 example pastor made of that dog? That dog came over there for a little bit of praise. I was in no mood of praising him that. I literally picked that dog from the back with both hands, picked him up, threw him over the fence. And I turned around and I told my wife, "You're next." Exaggerating, exaggerating. <laughs> Listen, when I looked over to my car, my wife's like this. My little girl's like, and I'm like, That's when I realized I had an anger issue. Now, I'm a little bit more peaceful. Paul says anger has no place in the home. He tells the children, honor, obey, and honor your, and honor your parents. You see, if you read those chapters in the chapter before that, he is supporting family values. And part of family values is that our children obey us and honor us. Not till they get 18. 
Some of you wait until you graduate from college, then you start disobeying us and honor us. You just want that check. <laughs> you honor your parents. Obey them until the day they die. That's family values. Listen. After he tells them he says this or writes this in support, he then leads, turns to the father. I wonder why the father, not the mother. I think some mothers have anger issues too. At least my mother did. Because when she couldn't reach me, she'd take off that chancla, that saddle, and like a boomerang, and then she caught it back on, put it back on. Not like some of you, like Bill Cosby once said, don't you move, boy. You better stay there. And you were so beating. Just to... Or wait until you were under the blankets, like he said. Then your parents got a hold of you. Turns around, tells the father, do not provoke your children to anger. I don't have the time to talk about anger. I can talk about anger for another hour. I'll leave that for Spanish. They got anger issues. Tienen ese machismo, that machismo. Gotta work on that. But I'm going to give you a summary of what Paul is trying to say in this verse. And that is this. That obedience and honor are motivated behavior. And motivated behavior is influenced by integrity that parents display. You want children as parents to obey you and honor you? Have some integrity in parenting. We have to have some integrity in our parenting so that they don't obey us just because we are parent, we are father and mother, but they obey us because they see the integrity in us. They won't be able to point a finger against you or anyone because you have lived, you have tried your best to live a life of integrity, not forcing your role upon them. And so Paul says, You want obedience? You want honor fathers and mothers? Live with integrity. Because integrity, and you live in integrity, it will motivate them. Lastly, in this verse, and here it is. You know why we need discipleship programs in the church? Because we've missed the primary source or the primary place for discipleship. Is not the church. It's the home. Notice what it says. Discipline and instruct them according to the Lord. Listen. I'll raise my hand. Be the first one like Paul said. I am guilty. You know why I... Hypothesized or concluded why my son left three years, 
for three for seven years. He went seven years. Didn't know where he was. And I know why. I was sharing it with Pastor Donnie just a while ago. I found the root. I didn't spend enough time with him. I put my ministry first before him. If you're involved in ministry, your greatest responsibility is not your ministry. It's your children. And if I had to do it over again, and if I didn't have to stand here, I would go back in time and not be willing to give this up to be able to give them time. Your greatest responsibility is not if you're a great preacher and a great evangelist. No, no, your greatest responsibility is to give time to your children. I realize now that's what I lacked in my son's life. All he wanted was time. Now we have time. Now he has come back into my life. Now we go back and sit down and eat breakfast. Now we talk. Now we work together. Oh, but it would have been much beautiful if I would not or where a parent doesn't doesn't lose those years. Has no room. I see some of you, you know, I'm a little concerned about ministry in the 21st century. There's this self-appointed ministry. Some of you just say, the Lord has called me. (laughs) Let me tell you how the Lord called me. This is the way my pastor said it. When the Lord tells you, you bet dead sure he's going to tell me. If you have children, that's your primary focus. Put it aside for a while. God's not going to pass you up. He can work it all out for you. He's big enough. Matter of fact, you need the practice in character building with time with children. So therefore, we realize these are the hypothetical Motives that that son could have had in that story to leave. But what is going on today? I did some research. Came across an article. Printed up in 1999. If you'll put that chart. Notice that this chart. I got to get my glasses. I can't see that far. That's a come. I hope you guys don't leave. Because if you leave, I won't see you leave this place. What are the issues parents, adult parents, or, or aging parents? Classic parents. I, I don't like to use old. I'm not getting old. I'm getting classic. What are the issues that are primarily at the top? Notice here that they did a longevity, a, a longitude, not longevity, longitude study of three, of two generations that extended themselves to three and as far as much as four. And they followed these families for four generations and during this period of time. And this is what they discovered. That for parents, the thorn in the flesh 
that causes parents to have conflict with their children is their habits and lifestyles. Choices. Let me tell you something, young adult, emerging young adult children. You know what gets into our crow? I mean, really gets into us is those habits. Those spending habits. Buying cars you can't afford. That really. The insurance is costing you a a lot of money. You think the Lord bless you because you got a 1.9% interest. But you're going to pay 72 months. Financial habits, expensive vacations, homes you cannot afford, and then you put furniture, you buy it on credit because they give you three years to pay. Duh! You still have to pay for it! That's what one of my sons said. Dad, three years. Duh! Save your money and buy it one penis at a time. No. That's the conflict, generational conflicts that happen. Notice your lifestyle choices. Really, stop and think for a while. Cohabitation. You come home one day and you say, I'm not going to get married. I'm just going to live with shack up. Mm. That's one of them times I just don't want to shoot you. I want to shoot whoever that other person is too. You know what I've learned about my children? I say, if you want me to respect your values, (laughs) have a little respect for my values. Understand where I'm coming from. Stop and think for a little while. But notice, cohabitation is not premarital sex. There's not a father in this room that would say, that's what's happening. <laughs> like the fun, the fawns. Well, the moment you find out that's going to happen to your daughter, your son, you're just like, what? It don't matter what generation. Listen, out of wedlock, out of wedlock, pregnancy. That just... Matter of fact, I wrote a paper on that some years ago about grandparents raising their grandchildren on the welfare check they're receiving. That's non-normative experience for an aging population. But what is a grandparent to do? Got to take them in. Intergenerational family conflict. Lastly, Two last ones. Sexual orientation. 
How do we deal with this? How in the world do we deal with this? If that's not enough, unhealthy habits, drinking. Now they've changed the words taking drugs to taking recreational drugs. What the heck is recreational drugs? What is recreational drugs? They don't get you high? I think they get you high. Do they get you in trouble? I think they do get you in trouble. Do they affect you healthy? You better believe it. But in defense of the next generation, in defense of that adult age group that is growing up, let's look at their side also. Let's look at what they consider that is causing the conflict. And that's communication and interaction style. In other words, the way the parent engages with these problems. We have to engage them. We can't just run them out. We can't just abandon them. And we surely can't kill them. They say to us, you need to improve in your communication and level of engagement. In other words, let's discuss. Don't just talk at me. They're grown adults. Sometimes they detect A lack of truthfulness. We're not being truthful. And in divorce situations and remarriage, sometimes they perceive also a discrepancy. But one of the things children really point out is the way parents treat each other. The way they treat each other. I've heard children tell me the way my dad treats my mother. I can't wait to leave. I've heard some children tell me the other way. The way my mother treats my dad. I just want to leave. I got five, ten minutes to finish. What do we need? What I've learned in my life experience is this. Parents need some pulling power. The burden of parenting in this century is not going to get any lighter. It's going to get heavier. And as parents, we need some pulling power. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 and 30. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, revealing them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavily laden. You need pulling power, parents? Here's a word of encouragement. Come to him. You who are laboring. And you are heavily laden. 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, hook up with me. Take my yoke upon you and learn. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. You need pulling power. We need pulling power. I would not have made it to this point as a parent. I've only told you one thing that has happened in my family. If I were to tell you everything, you'd probably say, and he's the pastor? What's he teaching us? What the heck is he teaching us? Well, you've heard it before. The reason our kids come out bad is because they hang around with your kids. (laughs) Man, I'm having so much fun. It's 1050. Thank Brother Jesse here. He brought some good tacos, tortillas. What my wife didn't do, he did for me. Thank you, Brother Jesse. Appreciate it. Listen, what is Jesus telling hurting parents? I got to finish. What is Jesus telling hurting parents to do? Number one, acknowledge your core relationship with the father. No matter what you're going through, you don't lose your relationship to God. Don't you let go of God. No matter what you're going through with your child, you don't let go of God. You hold on to that relationship. It's not God's fault. It's sin. It's the devil. You hold on to that relationship. This is what I learned in that period of time that my son was estranged, alienated from me. Excuse me. Notice what it says. Children are not the goal in life. They're not the goal in life. But they are a great part of the context for living out life in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we put our children on pedestals. Sometimes we walk around and we say, Johnny's going to do this. And boy, you have no idea what's in store. Pray, pray, pray. Children are not the goal in life. I had to learn that because when I was complaining to God about him taking too long, it had been five years. I said, Lord, it's been five years. Isn't five the number of grace? (laughs) I mean, that's what I hear. That's what them prophets say. Five is the number of grace. Well, I wasn't finding no grace. Come on up here. (laughs) I said, five years? Give me a little grace. And the Lord chastised me with his word. He said to me clearly, whoever loves father, mother, son, daughter more than me is not worthy of my love. Did he shed blood for you? Did he die for you? Boy, that was an attitude adjustment. I love my children. 
I love each one of them. Just like you love your children. I love them. You love them. But they're not your goal in life. You were given a responsibility. And you did the best you could have done. Now allow the circumstances to work out good things in your life. Learn from Jesus to walk the path of humility and gentleness. Because when the time comes for them to return, you will receive them with love. You won't bring up the past. Because when I saw my son, it was an afternoon. I was picking up my car. And across the street, my son was sweeping a warehouse. When I looked at him, I said, that looks like my son. I said, I'm going to walk on over there. I have nothing to lose. If he isn't, I'll just keep waiting. And I walked. And he was sweeping the floor to the back of the warehouse. And I stood at the entrance of that warehouse. And when he turned around for the very first time in seven years, but you know what we just walked to the middle of that warehouse and we didn't yell at each other we didn't say you did this I did that You, no all we did was hug and then we looked at each other and he said dad I've got a little girl she's four years old My wife and I didn't even know we had a grandchild. Now, we're buddies. Now I'm just waiting and believing God to bring him back to that wonderful message. Last slide as you stand and as you make your walk up here. Come on up. We want to pray. What do I leave with you today? Look at this, what I'm going to leave with you. Prayerfully acquire a compassionate perspective in reducing your shame and guilt. Sometimes you just, parents need to take it to Jesus. Second, fearlessly take responsibility for what you may have contributed to the conflict. If there's adult children here and you're still having issues with your parents... Take responsibility of your part. And number three, be resilient to pursue in forgiving your child for how he or she hurt you. And lastly, reassure your sincere endeavor to rectify the conflict. Would you bow your heads? Father, we stand before you.
not in perfection. We stand before you in need of wisdom. We stand before you in need of pulling power. In a time where there is much intergenerational conflict. Father, we believe. We believe that your sovereignty is working in our behalf over the lives of our prodigals. Father, we pray that you bring them not to us first, but we pray that you bring them to you. We want you to bring them to you. You are the one they need more than they need their parents. So, Father, we pray right now for all our children and all our children's children's. And we believe, God, that salvation is in the house. We believe, God, that salvation will extend to other generations. Because, Father, today we humble ourselves and we seek your face and we repent of our imperfections. And we ask, my Father, that you heal our relationships. We ask you this, believing that whatsoever we ask in your name, we shall receive. We ask it in Jesus' name.